Hello and welcome to the first in-between-isode of Shellshaw. Although Marilyn and I do our best to get a show out every week, our busy schedules sometimes make that difficult or even impossible. This week, we're busily preparing for the arrival of James Randi, whom we're hosting at Ohlone College on Friday, October 16th. But instead of just leaving you hanging, we decided to post this mini-episode, or in-between-isode, if you will, to tide you over. Please enjoy it and join us again next week for another full episode. Oh, and if you just can't get enough of the droning of my voice, be sure and check out the show notes for a link to an episode of the PRISM podcast I took part in recently. Grant and Jason were gracious enough to invite me on their show for an interview, and I think it went quite well. So without further delay, enjoy In Between the Sode number one of Shellshocked. Welcome to Shellshocked. Tomorrow, October 12th, marks the 47th anniversary of the opening ceremony of the Summer Olympic Games in Mexico City, way back in 1968. Although it included the usual excitement and pageantry of any Olympic Games, one incident stood out among all others and will be remembered and discussed for generations. It happened when John Carlos and Tommy Smith stood on the winner's dais to accept their gold and bronze medals for the 200 meters. And as the cameras recorded the event for posterity, these two brave African Americans each suddenly raised a black-gloved fist in a rebellious nature, openly wearing badges bearing the insignia of a human rights group as the star-spangled banner played on in the background to a hushed crowd of thousands. What followed was a frenzy of media activity, with millions across the country and around the world condemning these two men as disrespectful ingrates and troublemakers. They weren't in the least surprised, and accurately predicted the backlash against them as athletes, as Americans, and as men. International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage issued a declaration soon after, saying he felt that a political statement had no place in the International Forum of the Olympic Games. Less than 30 years earlier, Brundage had no such comment about the Nazi athletes who raised their arms in a salute to Adolf Hitler while receiving their medals. For nearly 50 years, this, one of the most significant stories in the history of the Olympic Games, has been told in an incomplete manner. Some might say only two-thirds of the story has ever been told. That's because there were three men on the dais that day. The silver medal winner, Australia's Peter Norman, was also there. And although he has often been left out of the story altogether, or worse, perceived as a symbol of the oppressive white society Carlos and Smith were protesting, the real truth is he was an important part of their act of defiance and paid an even higher price than they. Not unlike the U.S. South and South Africa, Australia in the 1960s had strict laws governing the rights of non-white citizens. The White Australia policy was made up of a variety of historical policies that intentionally favored immigrants to Australia who hailed from other English-speaking countries. And although many of the Australian laws were targeted specifically at Chinese and other Asian immigrants, black Australians were equally affected making Norman's countrymen just as disturbed by the incident at the Summer Olympics of 1968 as anyone in the American South. Thanks to an article in the Italian online source La Repubblica by journalist Gianni Mura, 
more complete story has now been told. According to Mora, Carlos and Smith did not think up this act on the spur of the moment. They were both members of the Olympic Project for Human Rights, a movement of athletes in support of the battle for racial equality. Knowing they had a good chance of winning that year, they had decided early on to make a visible stand for equality that would be broadcast to the world. Out of respect for their fellow athlete Peter Norman, they approached the silver medal winner and told him of their plan. As Carlos remembered years later, We knew what we were going to do was far greater than any athletic feat. And to his surprise, Norman responded, I'll stand with you. Carlos continued, I expected to see fear in Norman's eyes, but instead we saw love. The plan was as follows. Wearing their OPHR badges on their jackets, Smith and Carlos would stand without shoes, representing the poverty facing people of color, and in a sign of defiance and solidarity with the racial equality organization the Black Panthers, they would hold up one black gloved fist after receiving their medals. To their horror, they realized that they'd only brought one pair of gloves. It was their Australian colleague who suggested that they each wear one of the gloves. But the next part of the story moved the Americans the most. Norman asked to wear an Olympic Project for Human Rights badge. I believe in what you believe, he said. Do you have one of those for me? That way I can show my support in your cause. Smith later told a reporter of his astonishment at this request. Who is this white Australian guy? He won his silver medal. He can just take it and let that be enough. But Norman insisted he wanted in. Luckily, a white American on the rowing team named Paul Hoffman was also a member and gave his badge to Norman. The three men walked out onto the field, took their respective positions at the dais, and made history. Stopping the story here would create a false impression that history is neat and tidy. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. The aftermath for Smith and Carlos was swift and ugly. They were immediately suspended from the American Olympic team and expelled from the Olympic Village. Even their friend Paul Hoffman was accused of conspiracy. And once back home, they were maligned in the press, called traitors by politicians, and received numerous death threats. But as time passed and the nation evolved on the issue of racial equality, both men eventually rose to the level of respected leaders in the forefront of positive social change. At San Jose State University in San Jose, California, where the two men were students, a statue was erected in their honor in 2005. Perhaps fittingly, given the repercussions he suffered, Peter Norman is absent from that statue, with the silver medal second-place platform conspicuously vacant. Ironically, once back home, Norman suffered even greater ramifications than either Smith or Carlos. Just as his contribution to that day in 1968 was deleted from the statue in San Jose, his achievements in sports were deleted by his country. Once back in Australia, he was treated as an outsider and a troublemaker, his family suddenly outcasts, and work nearly impossible to find. When the Olympic Committee passed him over for the 1972 Olympics in Munich, despite impressive qualifying times for the 200 and 100 meters, Norman had no choice but to leave his beloved competitive athletics. He drifted from job to job, working for a time as a gym teacher, then in a butcher shop, and later a leg injury became infected and gangrenous, which led to issues with depression and alcohol dependence. As his sometime friend John Carlos later remembered, We were getting beat up, 
but Peter was facing an entire country and suffering alone. Unbeknownst to Smith and Carlos, Norman faced another pressure as well. He was given the opportunity to rejoin professional athletics on more than one occasion. The catch? He would have to publicly condemn Smith and Carlos for their actions that day in the summer of 68. He repeatedly refused, even when offered a pardon that would have allowed him to join the Australian Olympic Committee in the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. Norman never gave in. He died from a sudden heart attack in 2006 without even so much as an apology from his country, the greatest sprinter in history and the holder of the 200-meter record, rejected, disgraced, and wiped from history for doing the right thing. At his funeral, as pallbearers carried his coffin to a final resting place, two black Americans led the way, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, a little older, a little grayer, helping their friend as he helped them some four decades earlier. It would take another six years for the Australian Parliament to be shamed into formally apologizing to Norman and to rewrite him into history with an official statement of apology, six years after his death. If you happen to live in Australia, check the show notes for a link to the 2012 documentary made by Peter Norman's nephew, Matt Norman, entitled Salute. Hopefully, it will be in wide release soon, so that people on all continents can come to know and be inspired by this brave man. Thanks for tuning in and for listening to In Between Episode 1. If you'll be in the San Francisco Bay Area next Friday, October 16th, please check the show notes for a link to purchase your tickets for An Evening with James Randi at Ohlone College in Fremont, California. Randi will be present to delight us with a one-hour talk recounting some of the highlights from his 70-year career as a magician, an illusionist, a challenger of psychics and other charlatans, and as a leader in the effort to encourage critical thinking and rationality. You don't want to miss it. Next week, we'll be back with a full episode, and until then, you've been shell-shocked.